Welcome to another in-depth exploration of the book of Jeremiah, written by Imre Tokich, Ph.D., LLD, edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Exploration 4, Rebuke and Retribution. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 14, New King James Version. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, in the English Standard Version, tells us, What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun this is especially true when it comes to the lives and work of God's prophets who were often called to deliver words of warning and rebuke to those who should have known better. Those seeking to be faithful to their calling, the prophets, for the most part, faced fervent opposition, even retribution, often from the spiritual leaders, those who should have been the first to listen to them. No wonder Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Matthew Chapter 23, verses 29 and 30. In this exploration, we will start to look at the trials of Jeremiah, whose ministry seemed to consist of nothing but rebuke and retribution. He giving the rebuke, the leaders giving him retribution. From the earliest chapters of Genesis to the last chapters of Revelation, the Bible presents to us only two options on how to live. We either follow the Lord with all our heart and soul, or we don't. As Jesus said, in words that many have found troubling, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Luke chapter 11 and verse 23. This is a powerfully unambiguous statement about spiritual realities greater than what appears to the naked eye or than what common sense would seem to tell us. It's the great controversy theme at its most basic level. And yet, in one sense, Jesus isn't saying anything new or radical. 
It's always been this way. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 10, in the New Living Translation, are headlined with the words, Wisdom from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert, with no hope for the future. They will live in the barren wilderness, in an uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord, and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank, with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green, and they never stop producing fruit. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. What crucial spiritual principles did you hear in these verses, especially in light of the great controversy between Christ and Satan? The immediate context of these words probably reflects Judah's political dalliances, and the Lord wanted them to understand that their only help was in God, not in political or military powers, a point that they would later learn, but only after it was far too late. Though the Lord can and does use other people to help us, in the end, we must always put our trust only in Him. We can never know for sure the motives of others. We can always know God's intentions for us. With good reason, Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 warns about the deceitfulness of the human heart. The Hebrew text says that the heart is more deceitful than everything. The horrific physical effects of sin, as bad as they are, aren't as bad as the moral and spiritual effects. The problem is, because our hearts are already so deceitful, we can't fully know just how bad they really are. Jeremiah was soon to see for himself how very bad human intentions can be. How can you learn to trust in the Lord more than you have before? What are the ways that you can step out in faith right now and do what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Judah. Certainly, Jeremiah's task was not going to be easy. Maybe some people might find perverse pleasure 
and pointing out people's sins, but most would find it to be very unappealing work, especially because of the reactions their words would provoke. Though some, when they hear the words of rebuke, might repent and reform, that's usually not the case, especially when the rebuke itself is very pointed and strong. And indeed, as with all of the prophets, the words of Jeremiah were just that, pointed and strong. Let's listen to Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. What were some of the warnings that Jeremiah gave to the people? Judah's sin and punishment. The sin of Judah is inscribed with an iron chisel, engraved with a diamond point on their stony hearts and on the corners of their altars. Even their children go to worship at their pagan altars and Asherah poles, beneath every green tree and on every high hill. So I will hand over my holy mountain, along with all your wealth and treasures and your pagan shrines, as plunder to your enemies. For sin runs rampant in your land. The wonderful possession I have reserved for you will slip from your hands. I will tell your enemies to take you as captives to a foreign land, for my anger blazes like a fire that will burn forever. The imagery of the sin engraved on the heart is especially powerful. It shows the depth of the corruption. The idea isn't just that the sin is written there as with a pen, but that it is engraved there, etched in with a tool. This all becomes even more powerful when one remembers the words of the Lord to Judah's ancestors written in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 10 in the New International Version. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's compare those words with Psalm chapter 40 and verse 8 and Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33. Psalms chapter 40 and verse 8. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. And Jeremiah chapter 31, 33. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It was out of their hearts that they were to love God and obey his law. Now, instead, their sin, the violation of that law, is etched in their hearts. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 Let none who claim to be the depositaries of God's law flatter themselves that the regard they may outwardly show toward the commandments 
will preserve them from the exercise of divine justice. Let none refuse to be reproved for evil, nor charge the servants of God with being too zealous in endeavoring to cleanse the camp from evil-doing. A sin-hating God calls upon those who claim to keep His law to depart from all iniquity. The author of that counsel is Ellen G. White in her book entitled Prophets and Kings on page 416. Sin engraved on the heart? That's a scary thought, isn't it? What does that image say about just how deep and intense the work of purifying our hearts is? What is the only way to accomplish it? Warning to Jeremiah. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. John chapter 3 and verse 19. The sad story of Jeremiah is that the opposition he faced came from the very ones that, through him, the Lord was trying to save. The Lord wanted to spare them the disaster that was sure to come. The problem, though, is that people often don't want to hear what they need to hear because it cuts against their sinful and corrupt desires. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 11, verses 18 through 23. What is going on in these verses? What does some of the imagery remind you of? A plot against Jeremiah. Then the Lord told me about the plots my enemies were making against me. I was like a lamb being led to the slaughter. I had no idea they were planning to kill me. Let's destroy this man and all his words, they said. Let's cut him down so his name will be forgotten forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, you make righteous judgments and you examine the deepest thoughts and secrets. Let me see your vengeance against them, for I have committed my cause to you. This is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth who wanted me dead. They had said, We will kill you if you do not stop prophesying in the Lord's name. So this is what the Lord of heaven's armies says about them. I will punish them. Their young men will die in battle, 
and their boys and girls will starve to death. Not one of these plotters from Anathoth will survive, for I will bring disaster upon them when their time of punishment comes. Though in ancient Israel those who falsely prophesied in the name of the Lord could face death, in this case there was no indication that the men of Anathoth thought Jeremiah was speaking falsely. Instead, it seemed that they just wanted him silenced. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. Though the text doesn't say how they planned to kill him, some scholars have thought that they might have been thinking of poisoning him. As we heard too, Anathoth was Jeremiah's hometown, and its people were rejecting his message, even to the point of being willing to kill him. This, though, was only the beginning of a much wider rejection by all but a remnant of his own nation. Of course, all of this, including the lamb led to the slaughter imagery, evokes the sacrifice of Jesus. In a sense, Jeremiah prefigured Christ not as a type like the animal sacrifices, but in that he, like Jesus, faced powerful opposition from the very ones he was trying to help. This situation in Jeremiah's life definitely calls to mind what Jesus went through early in his ministry as well, as told in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30, which say, Jesus rejected and Nazareth. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, You will undoubtedly quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself, meaning, Do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, No prophet is accepted in his own hometown.
Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the heavens were closed for three and a half years, and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. When was the last time you heard something that you knew was right, but you simply didn't want to hear it? What was your initial reaction? Why must you learn to take up your cross? Lament. In the earliest chapters of Jeremiah, the Lord had warned his servant that his work as a prophet was not going to be easy. At the time of his calling, Jeremiah was told that Judah's princes, kings, priests, and people would fight against him. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 19. Although he was told that the Lord would sustain him, and that his opponents would not prevail against him, no doubt the warning that most of his own people were going to fight him wasn't welcome news. Jeremiah, though, didn't yet know the half of it, and when trials came, he was understandably angry and hurt. Though Jeremiah was speaking about his own situation, what universal issue is the prophet struggling with in Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 4? As you listen, answer these questions. What is the prophet's attitude toward those who have hurt him? What does this tell you about the humanity of even God's most faithful servants? Jeremiah's Prayer Jeremiah chapter 12 Verses 1 through 4. You, O Lord, are uncompromisingly righteous and consistently just when I plead my case with you. Yet let me discuss issues of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are those who deal in treachery and deceit at ease and thriving? You have planted them, they have also taken root, they grow. They have even produced fruit. You are 
honored by their hypocritical lips. But you are far from their heart and mind. But you, O Lord, know me and understand my devotion to you. You see me, and you examine the attitude of my heart toward you. Drag out the faithless like sheep for the slaughter, O Lord, and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long must the land mourn and the grass of the countryside wither? Because of the wickedness and hypocrisy of those who live in it, the beasts and the birds are consumed and are swept away by the drought. Because men mocking me have said, He will not live long enough to see what happens at our final end. Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 1 is filled with Old Testament legal language. The Hebrew words for righteous, bring a case, and justice all appear in legal settings. The prophet, so upset over what he has been facing, is bringing a lawsuit against the Lord. His complaint, of course, is a common one. Why do the evils seem to prosper while he, Jeremiah, seeking only to do God's will, faces such trials? We can see, too, Jeremiah's humanity exhibited. He wants those who have done evil to him to be punished. He's not speaking here as a theologian. He's speaking as a fallen human being in need of grace, who, like Job and like many of God's faithful people, doesn't understand why these things are happening to him. Why should Jeremiah, God's servant, called to declare God's truth to a rebellious people, be subjected to the treacherous plots of his own village. Jeremiah trusted in the Lord, but he surely didn't understand why things were happening as they were. How can you learn to trust in the Lord despite all the things that happen that just don't seem to make sense to you? Desperate situation. Let's listen to Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. What is happening? The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, and her gates languish. Her people sit on the ground in mourning clothes, and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They have returned with empty vessels. They have been shamed and humiliated, and they cover their heads. The ground is cracked, because there has been no rain on the land. The farmers are distressed, and they have covered their heads in shame." 
because there is no grass. The doe in the field has given birth only to abandon her young because there is no grass. And the wild donkeys stand on the barren heights. They pant for air like jackals. Their eyesight fails because there is no grass. O Lord, though our many sins testify against us, praise Jeremiah, act now for us and for your name's sake, so that the faithless may witness your faithfulness. For our backslidings are countless. We have sinned against you. O hope of Israel, her Savior in time of distress and trouble, why should you be like a sojourner, temporary resident in the land, or like a traveler who turns aside and spreads his tent to linger only for a night? Why should you be hesitant and inactive, like a man astounded and perplexed, like a mighty man unable to save? Yet you, O Lord, are among us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus says the Lord to this people, Judah, in the manner and to the degree already pointed out, they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember in detail their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Drought struck all of the land. Every city, town, and village suffered. The poor and the rich suffered together. Not even the wildlife could bear the lack of water. The aristocrats waited for their servants at the city gates, hoping they had found water. But the springs had dried up. There was no water, and without water, life could not continue. Their misery grew from day to day. The people put on mourning clothes and walked, with their eyes downcast. Then they would suddenly kneel and cry out in desperate prayer. At the time of such a natural catastrophe, it was the custom to visit the temple in Jerusalem, as described in Joel chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, and chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The purpose of visiting the temple in these times was to fast and to make special offerings to God. Jeremiah saw the eagerness of the people, but he knew well that they didn't seek the Lord, only the water. This saddened the prophet further. Jeremiah was also praying not for water, but for the mercy and presence of God. Jeremiah understood, too, that this was only the beginning of the trials to come. God saw the hearts of the people and knew that if he were to remove the drought, then the repentance would also disappear. The people did everything to try to change their situation, including going to Jerusalem, praying, fasting, 
putting on sackcloth and making offerings, but they forgot one thing, true conversion, true repentance. They were looking only to remove the results of the problem, not the problem itself, which was their sin and disobedience. Let's listen to Jeremiah chapter 14, verses 11 through 16, from the New Living Translation. How do you understand this? The Lord forbids Jeremiah to intercede. Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for these people anymore. When they fast, I will pay no attention. When they present their burnt offerings and grain offerings to me, I will not accept them. Instead, I will devour them with war, famine, and disease. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, their prophets are telling them all is well. No war or famine will come. The Lord will surely send you peace. Then the Lord said, These prophets are telling lies in my name. I did not send them or tell them to speak. I did not give them any messages. They prophesy of visions and revelations they have never seen or heard. They speak foolishness made up in their own lying hearts. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will punish these lying prophets, for they have spoken in my name, even though I never sent them. They say that no war or famine will come, but they themselves will die by war and famine. As for the people to whom they prophesy, their bodies will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and war. There will be no one left to bury them, husbands, wives, sons, and daughters. All will be gone, for I will pour out their own wickedness on them. Do not pray for this people for their good. God told Jeremiah, even though Jeremiah earlier presented a great example of intercessory prayer, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake. In Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 7. Though we are told to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 17, in this case, the Lord who knows everything from beginning to end is revealing to Jeremiah just how corrupt and fallen these people are. Of course, God knows people's hearts. And God knows the future. We don't. Hence the New Testament admonition to pray, even for our enemies, doesn't lose any of its force. 
let's continue exploring. Jeremiah struggled with a question that we all do. How do we make sense of evil? But maybe that's the problem. Trying to make sense of what's not sensible. What could even be deemed as nonsense. In this regard, Ellen G. White wrote, It is impossible to explain the origin of sin so as to give a reason for its existence. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be sin. Those words were written by Ellen G. White in her book, The Great Controversy, on pages 492 and 493. Replace the word sin with evil, and the statement works just as well. Listen to that statement again with that substitution. It is impossible to explain the origin of evil so as to give a reason for its existence. Evil is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be evil. When tragedy strikes, we hear people say, or we ourselves may think, I don't understand this. It doesn't make sense. Well, there's a good reason that we don't understand it. It's not understandable. If we could understand it, if, if it made sense, if it fit into some logical and rational plan, then it wouldn't be that evil. It wouldn't be that tragic. Because it would serve a rational purpose. How crucial it is that we remember that evil, like sin, cannot often be explained. What we do have, however, is the reality of the cross, which shows us the love and goodness of God despite the inexplicable evil caused by sin. Here is a point to ponder and a few questions to consider. Evil and suffering don't make sense. They don't have a rational or good explanation. Why is it better that way? Think about it. A horrible tragedy strikes. Perhaps a young child dies of a terrible disease after years of suffering. Do we really want to believe that a good and rational reason exists for this? Isn't it better to chalk it up to the terrible and evil results of living 
in a fallen world? ambassadorgroup.org Thank you for exploring with us. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.